Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you in your journey with Christ. For additional resources, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. Hey, church, uh, open your Bibles with me to John chapter three, John chapter three. You know, if you walk into a bookstore, odds are one of the first things that you'll notice is the self-help section. And right off the bat, I think that you will notice two things about the self-help section. First of all, I think you'll notice that it's funny. Like, I cannot believe some of the things that people actually write books about. Here are some actual self-help book titles. Uh, First one is, uh, How to Be So Far Behind That It Actually Feels Like You're in First Place. I I, I think that book is about me. Uh, How to Pretend to Be Normal. I think Steve wrote that one. Uh, How to Mistakenly Assume That You Have Everything Under Control. And how to use silent treatment in a street fight. <laughs> Let me know how that works for you. I think that's the first thing you'll notice about the self-help section. Is It's funny, but I think the second thing you'll notice is that it's big. Self-help is a $10 billion industry. There are books on body training, doggy training, hubby training, potty training, self-help books for your social life, your sex life, your work life, your family life, self-help for a better retirement, a, a better workout, a better bank account, a better marriage, better abs. And that's just books. That's not even counting. A motivational podcasts and life coaches and support groups and quick fix diets and workout routines, not to mention New Year's resolutions. How are those going, by the way? <laughs> this is big business. And notice, notice we call it the, the self-help industry, uh, which at first strikes me as an oxymoron. Like if you're reading a book written by someone else, doesn't it cease to be self-help at that point? Like isn't it just help? <laughs> but I think the fact that we do call it self-help tells us two things about our culture, really about ourselves. I think the first thing that it tells us is that deep down inside, we know we're not okay. I think you know this, that, that when you look in the mirror, when you lay down at night, you have this nagging sensation that, that life is not yet all that it could be, that we are not yet all that we should be. We know we're okay, we're not okay. But I think the second thing it reveals about us is that yes, while we can gain some helpful wisdom and some insights from some other people, at the end of the day, we gotta help ourselves. And, and, and this is hardwired into the American psyche, this belief that if we just work hard enough, we can pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. And in fact, we even Christianize it. And we say, God helps those who help themselves, which is not in the Bible, by the way. How's that going for you? Because at the core of the self-help industry is this assumption that what you need most are some new tricks, some, some new techniques, some new habits, some new tools in your motivational toolbox so that you can tinker with your life a little bit, improve a few areas that are sagging, do some remodeling on your personality. But today in John chapter three, Jesus lobs a hand grenade into the self-help section. In fact, here's what I think Jesus wants you to hear today. You don't just need a tweak here and there. You don't just need some new wallpaper on your life. You don't just need to be remodeled. You need to be rebuilt. You need a whole new life. That's what Jesus says. 
here in John chapter three, verses one through 16. You might remember we just came out of John chapter two. We're spending this year through the writings of John. Uh, John was Jesus's best friend here on earth. So we're calling this a year with Jesus's best friend. Uh, Last week in John chapter two, we saw Jesus's first miracle. He turns the water into wine. Right after that, he goes and causes a big ruckus in the temple. And now here we are, John chapter three, verse one. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. Now, the Pharisees were just this group of middle-class people who decided to take their devotion to God seriously. And and these Jewish people, they decided they were gonna obey all the commandments in the Old Testament to the letter. All 613 commandments, 248 thou shalts, and 365 thou shalt nots. This was a big deal. If your kid turned out to be a Pharisee, you'd put it on your bumper sticker. You'd be proud of him. And Nicodemus was the best of the best. Verse three, excuse me, verse two. It says, he came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who came from God, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. So Nicodemus approaches Jesus and, and, and he's respectful right off the bat. He acknowledges, hey man, we see what you're doing and it sure looks like you're working with God. And then Jesus just dives right into the deep end. Verse three, Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. Born again, that could literally be translated born from above, from the top. Verse four, how can someone be born again when they're old? Nicodemus asked, surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And yeah, that, like that's a pretty logical question, right? Uh, my wife, Rebecca, is pregnant right now with our third little boy. And so our, our three-year-old Judah is still kind of processing how this whole pregnancy thing works. The other day, he looked at the vacuum cleaner and he said, hey, look, here's its umbilical cord. <laughs> and, and you know, so we still got a ways to go, but he's learning and, and he's thinking. And the other day he asked Rebecca, he said, so... So when the baby comes out, is, is he gonna stay out? <laughs> and, and, and it's a good question. Like, what do you mean be born again, Jesus? Verses five through seven, Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. So Jesus is kind of being a little hard on Nicodemus here. He's saying, Jesus is saying, hey, hey buddy, you, you teach the scriptures. You should have known that this was coming. You should have reached this conclusion on your own. So what's Jesus talking about here, being born of water and, and the spirit? What should Nicodemus have known from reading his Old Testament? Well, Back in the Old Testament, the prophet Ezekiel gets this message from God. God talks to Ezekiel about water and spirit. Look at this, verses, uh, Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. God says, I will sprinkle you with clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit in you to move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. So God sees the failed self-help efforts of his people and he says, no, 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 I'm gonna give you a whole new life. I'm gonna give you my spirit in you to empower you to become who I'm calling you to be. I'm gonna wash you with water, cleanse you from your sin. Now, that's what Nicodemus should have known. Back to what Jesus says to Nicodemus in verse eight. Jesus says, the wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. 
So it is with everyone born of the spirit. The word for wind there is the same as the word for spirit. In Hebrew, it's ruach. In Greek, it's pneuma. And, and, and he's saying, yeah, the spirit is like the wind. You can't see him. You can't control him. You can't predict him. But when he moves, it is undeniable. Verses nine through 16. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You are Israel's teacher, said Jesus, and, and you do not know these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the son of man. He's talking about himself. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. You need a whole new life. So if you've ever been frustrated by your lack of change, if you've ever wondered, why am I not different? What am I missing? Then there's three truths from this conversation between Jesus and Nicodemus that I want you to marinate in. And the first truth is this. The failure you experience runs deeper than you realize. The, the failure you experience runs deeper than you realize. Let's, let's talk for a minute about the doctrine of total depravity. Will you nerd out with me here for a second? Total depravity. Now, a lot of people believe that we as human beings are basically good. Unfortunately, the Bible does not teach that. That yes, you are born good, but then as you begin to sin, you, you become warped so much so that we are no longer basically good. In fact, you're like a car that's out of alignment. And if you take your hand off the wheel, it's not gonna keep going straight. That thing is gonna drift into the ditch. Now, this might sound pretty Calvinist to you. I'm not a Calvinist, but I have a son named Calvin. And there are days that he is a beacon of irresistible grace. And there are other days <laughs> when he is proof of total depravity. If you do not believe in total depravity, you probably do not have children. Because if you have kids, you have seen this, right? Nobody had to teach them how to hit their brother or how to lie or how to hoard all their toys. We come by it naturally, don't we? Now, total depravity doesn't mean that you are completely wicked, but it does mean that the totality of your personhood has been tainted. It means that your mind, your emotions, your body, your desires have all been warped by sin. So that means that if all we do to try to become a better person is behavior modification, that's like rearranging the deck chairs on the Titanic. Like you're doing cosmetic work on a ship that is going down. We're totally depraved. So if you're frustrated by a lack of transformation in your life, it's not just that you have some annoying behaviors or you need to be more disciplined. No, the situation is much, much worse than that. And Paul describes people who are apart from Jesus in Ephesians chapter two. He says, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. Ephesians chapter four, he says, they are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. You're dead. You ever tried selling self-help books at a cemetery? <laughs> I don't know how well that's gonna go for you. The prophet Ezekiel actually, he, he actually had had that experience. He, he knows how well that works. 
You remember we read a little bit ago in Ezekiel chapter 36 about how God, he promised he was gonna make his people new. He's gonna give a new heart for his people, cleanse them with water, fill them with his spirit. Well, in the very next chapter, Ezekiel chapter 37, God takes Ezekiel and he plops him down in this valley full of dry bones. And God asks Ezekiel, he says, hey, hey, can these bones live? And Ezekiel's like, well, you, you might know the answer to that question, Lord, but, but I sure don't. And then, as if being in a valley full of dry bones isn't a strange enough experience, God tells Ezekiel to start preaching to the bones. And gotta be honest, guys, that's sometimes what I feel like here. Like, I'm preaching to dry bones. Y'all gotta help me out a little bit. Can you say amen every once in a while? It's like saying, sick him to a hound dog, all right? Let's go. A little, little bit of feedback. And, and so, sure enough, Ezekiel starts preaching, and lo and behold, stuff starts happening. I mean, the bones, they, they start shaking and they start rattling and pretty soon bones are flying around and stuff's uh, getting crazy, but Ezekiel keeps preaching and all of a sudden the bones start coming together. They're clinking and they're clinking and muscle and skin start to grow on the bones, but, but still, they're, they're just lying there. I mean, it's cool, all right, but the bones are still dead. And listen, you can read all the books you want to read. You can go to all the classes you want to go to. You can listen to sermons and podcasts and worship musics. You can, you can come to church. You can join a home group. You can volunteer to serve. You can do all kinds of stuff. But it's just the shaking and rattling of dead, dry bones if the Spirit of God does not fill you. You need a whole new life. The failures you experience are deeper than you realize. That's what happened with Nicodemus. I mean, he had it all. The guy had a tip-top spiritual resume. He had all the credentials. But it was just dead man's bones in a rabbi's robe. He was a good guy. But that was the problem. Sometimes good people are the deadest ones of all. And Jesus looks at him and he says, hey, Nick, that's rubbish. Your credentials don't count for anything here. Your heritage, your morality, your theology, it will get you nowhere with God. Listen to me, church, when you stand before God, he's not going to ask you whether or not you are an active member of PCC. It's not gonna matter whether you grew up in a Christian family. He's not gonna ask how you voted or if you had the right opinions on things. If Jesus says that Nicodemus, the teacher of Israel, the cream of the religious crop, if he can't get in on his credentials, then our spiritual resumes are just a bag full of dry bones. Truth number two, the transformation you require is more radical than you thought. If the failure we experience runs deeper than we realize, then the transformation we require is more radical than we thought. For example, let's say that you spend your whole life building your dream house and you do it all yourself. You hammer every nail, you run every wire and you spared no expense. The curtains, the carpet, the color, you got it all just the way you like it. It's beautiful. And then you hear about a master home builder who's come to town and, and you've heard about this guy. You've seen his work on TV. He's the absolute best. He makes Chip and Joanna Gaines look like rookies. And so you invite him over, have him take a look around, see maybe he could give you a suggestion or two about how to take the house to the next level. Maybe, I don't know, rearrange some fittings, move around some furniture, maybe even take out a wall here or there, open up some more space. And the builder comes over, he walks in the door, takes one look around. He says, nope, 
This will never do. Tear it all down, the whole thing. It's gotta go. What? Tear it down. I, I, I gave my life to this house. Maybe that's how Nicodemus felt. Maybe that's how you feel when Jesus says you must be born again because, I mean, you got a good life. You got, you got a, a nice life. I mean, you have good education, decent job, solid work ethic. People respect you. Now, it's not that you're perfect, right? We all know that. If I told you that you had like a God-shaped hole in your heart, you would understand that, certainly. You'd love a little bit more God in your life to help make you complete. But that's not what Jesus is saying. He's not saying that he came to make you complete and to fill the little hole in your heart. He's saying that you're dead and you need to be remade, rebuilt from the ground up. And keep in mind, Jesus is not saying this to a tax collector or a prostitute or the thief on the cross. He's not saying this to somebody who's squandered their life away. He's saying this to the most ethical, respected, successful, God-fearing guy around. And, and he doesn't say, hey, Nicodemus, you're, you're doing a pretty good job. You're almost there. Just try a little bit harder. Here's the piece you're missing. No, he says, tear down. Start over. You have come as far as your flesh can take you. You must be born again. You need a whole new life. And that's why our purpose as a church isn't loving all people to better habits or loving all people to good advice or loving all people to a successful life or loving all people to self-improvement. Our purpose is loving all people to new life in Christ. Flashback now to Ezekiel, the prophet in the Old Testament. He's, He's still there in the Valley of Dry Bones, and and he has just preached his heart out. And sure, yeah, the bones rattled and stuff happened and skin grew, but still, it's just a valley full of corpses. Those people are dead. And then God speaks again, again to Ezekiel, and he says, hey, this time, don't just preach the word. Preach to the wind. And Ezekiel does, and as he did, the breath of God entered those dry bones, and the dry bones came to life. Oh, church. I mean, don't you want that? Can you imagine? Aren't you, aren't you hungry for the breath of God to come into this church and to bring us to life? Because uh, we, we, can, we can preach and we can sing all day, but if it's just dead bones rattling if God doesn't breathe. We can take the one challenge and we can build intentional relationships and ask good questions and share our stories, but it's useful if the wind doesn't blow. It's useless, excuse me, if the wind doesn't blow. And we can try hard to do all the things that we know that we're supposed to do to become who God wants us to be, but we are dead Unless the spirit of God comes and we're born again by water and spirit, we are in need of a radical transformation. We need a whole new life. We must be born again. So Nicodemus' question then is a good one. How can this be? Well, truth number three. The love that you've been given is strong enough to save. The hard news tonight is is that the failure you experience runs deeper than you realize, and the transformation you require is more radical than you thought. But the good news is the love that you've been given is strong enough to save. Jesus says that the only criteria that gets you into his kingdom 
is new birth. That means that you can't do it. A baby can't give birth to itself, right? Like, like what did you do to deserve being born? You had nothing to do with it. Uh, as, as, the, as the due date uh, approaches in our house, Rebecca has started nesting. And some of you dads just had PTSD as I said that, didn't you? I mean, we are shuffling furniture around, we're buying stuff, we're selling stuff, we're cleaning, we're painting. It's a lot of work. And that baby's not helping at all. He's not working. He's just floating around in there. <laughs> And when the day of his arrival comes, I'm gonna be there in the delivery room with Rebecca. And I was there, I watched the other two boys being born. And in that room, like, there's a lot of work going on, let me tell you. There's, there's a lot of pain being experienced. But guess who wasn't working? Oh, me. <laughs> but also the baby. Like, the baby did absolutely nothing. So when we think about what Jesus is saying here, he is setting the bar extremely low for entrance into his kingdom. Here's the bar, verses 14 and 15. Jesus says, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the son of man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. Jesus is referring back to a story from the Old Testament in Numbers chapter 21, where the people of Israel start grumbling against God. And so God sends these poisonous snakes among the people and people start dying and they're desperate. So they beg Moses for help and Moses prays to God. And God says this in Numbers chapter 21, verses eight and nine. The Lord said to Moses, make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who's bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, they lived. Now, try to imagine this. These people are swollen. They are writhing in pain from the venom. They have tried everything, every medicine in the cabinet, every doctor in the camp, every snake bite self-help book they could find to no avail. And then somebody comes in and they say, hey, uh, Moses, he, he just put this bronze snake up on a pole in the middle of camp and, and people are going there and every time somebody looks at it, like they're getting better. Let's go. So think about it. What would you have done? I, I might've been a little skeptical. Like, look at it. Really, like that, that's all I have to do. No, no groveling, no restitution, no magical hocus pocus, no money required. Just, just look at, at, at a snake. That snake is repulsive. That snake bit me. That snake reminds me of my sin. And yes, to look at the cross is a repulsive reminder that the failures we experience run much deeper than we realize. To look at the cross is a gruesome reminder that it is our total depravity that crucified the Son of God as we see our bloodied Savior lifted up. But look at the cross. Look at the love of the Father given through the Son that we might be made new in the Spirit. Look at the cross and see him hanging there Blood gushing from his forehead, from the crown of thorns, back shredded from the whip. Look at the cross. See the blood and water flowing from the side of our Savior as he's pierced. 
Look at the cross as his body goes limp. Look at the cross as the centurion kneels and says, surely this was the son of God. Look at the cross as they take his body down and lay it in the tomb, but don't stop looking. Don't stop. Look as his body lays dead as dry bones in the tomb on Saturday. But do you hear the rattling? Can you feel the wind? Look as the breath of God fills his lungs. Look as he strides triumphant from the tomb Sunday morning. Look as he ascends to the right hand of the Father 40 days later. And look now as the crucifixion and resurrection of the Son of God is the eternal proof that the love of God is strong enough to save us and to bring us back to life, church. Look at the cross. Because he lives, you can have a whole new life. And so now, here we are, the very next verse, John 3.16. For God, it was nothing we could do. God took the initiative for our salvation. For God so loved, he loved us first. He doesn't love us because he saved us. He saved us because he loves us. For God so loved the world. It's you, me, Nicodemus, everybody. Addicts and adulterers, liars, thieves and hypocrites, the high and mighty, the poor and lowly, oppressed and oppressor, born and unborn, deadbeat dads, single moms, CEOs, unemployed, the divorced, the widowed, the unhappily married, the happily married, preachers and pagans, sinners and saints. For God so loved the world that he gave. If you ask my family how they know I love them, it's not what I tell them, though I tell them every day, it's what I give them as the expression of my affection. For God so loved that he gave his one and only son. He didn't just send a message or a servant or an angel. He sent his son. And Steve and I, we love you a lot. But I wouldn't give my son for you. But God did. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, this was not a purposeless gift, God gave his son in order that whoever, whoever believes in him, whoever believes, whoever looks upon him, whoever trusts him and builds their lives upon that trust, whoever believes in him shall not perish. Now we deserve to perish. We've all been bitten by the snake. We're all dead, dry bones, and we deserve it. But God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life, never ending, never boring, life to the full. But you must be born again. Now we don't know the, the rest of Nicodemus's story, but we do see him again in John chapter seven as he's actually defending Jesus to the other Pharisees. And then we see him again in John chapter 19 and after Jesus dies, it's, it's Nicodemus who helps to take his body down from the cross and prepare it for burial. I, I don't know, but I think he was transformed. I think he got a whole new life through a whole new love. I think he'd been born again. A couple of years ago, I had the privilege of visiting a ministry that our church supports called TCM. It's a seminary that trains people from all over the world for ministry. And I got to spend a week there at their main hub in Austria and just meet some of the most incredible people I've ever come in contact with. And one evening at dinner, I sat next to a man named Sabri. 
And Sabri is an Albanian church planter and Albania is 80% Muslim. And Sabri had not been a Christ follower for his whole life. In fact, he grew up under the communist regime and, and Sabri was a gangster. Uh, his, his life was a violent mess. People around him were dying, killing each other. And Sabri's father was a Muslim and he saw the way his son's life was trending and he, he became concerned for his son. And so he gave his son a copy of the Quran and, and, and he and a Muslim teacher had Sabri pray this Muslim prayer that was supposed to help to banish the devil from Sabri's life. And so Sabri, he prayed that prayer. 33 times a day, and it didn't work. So he, he prayed it 99 times a day, and it didn't work. He prayed it 499 times a day, and it didn't work. Sabri's life of violence and crime continued. He was trapped in the gang. He felt completely hopeless, and one day Sabri was at the bar, drunk, and, and he just, he snapped. He went into a rage and he told everybody to get, get out of the bar. And he said that if anybody came back in, he would kill them on the spot. So everybody left. But a few minutes later, the door swung open and one man walked in. And he looked at Sabri the gangster in, in all of his mess, drunk and angry, a twisted picture of tragedy and rage. And the man said to Sabri, do you know that Jesus loves you? You wanna to come to church with me? <laughs> and, and Sabri was shocked. But I'm drunk, he said, and I'm a Muslim. <laughs> the man said, that's okay. Just come with me. And the man got Sabri a Bible and they started reading it together and comparing it to the Quran. And eventually Sabri came to believe that the Bible was in fact true, but he still wasn't a Christian. And so eventually Sabri did decide that enough was enough. And so he, he went for a walk and he started praying and he prayed, God, if you can change me, then, then I'll follow you. But he didn't pray in Jesus's name. Muslims are scared to do that. And, and all of a sudden this huge dog came out of nowhere and, and stood right in front of Sabri. And Sabri was terrified because he recognized this dog. This was a local dog fighting dog and this animal was not happy. It was snarling and ready to attack. And Sabri was terrified. He didn't know what to do. He didn't have his gun on him. And, and if he bent down to grab a rock, the dog was faster than he was. And so he was trapped. But then my friend Sabri heard a voice say, Use my name. And so Sabri said, in the name of Jesus, go away. And the dog barked twice, turned around and left. And Sabri fell on his knees right there and he asked God to forgive his sins. And eight months later, he was a pastor, born again, living a whole new life through a whole new love. And it can happen for you. If you need to be born again, whether you are brand new to the faith or whether you've been in church your whole life, just like Nicodemus, you must be born again. So come find us. We would love to talk with you. You can always go to mypcc.info, tap on the baptism card. We would love to walk with you to the cross of Jesus Christ and look upon him. Because he lives, you can have a whole new life. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son. His death on the cross is proof of your love and his resurrection from the dead is proof of your power. And we look upon him for healing and we look again at the cross now as we take the bread and the juice and we do it with gratitude. 
But that's not all, Lord. We're still hungry. We're still thirsty for more. God, we want your spirit to breathe on us upon this church, upon our community, upon the people that you have laid on our hearts for the one challenge. Lord, we know that we are absolutely powerless to bring new life. It's just dead bones if we do it on our own. But through your Holy Spirit, we can all be born again. So Lord, let it be so. In the name of your Son, amen. Thank you for listening today. It's our desire to help you grow as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in Christ. If you have any questions about our church, would like to attend an online service, or plan an in-person visit with us, go to plainfieldchristian.com. If you'd like to receive our podcast directly to your device, we encourage you to subscribe on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.